to the Bunch of Apes podcast and I am delighted to be joined by my guest today. Slightly less delighted by his second name which I'm going to give a go at pronouncing now and I'm going to be able to tell from his face whether I've absolutely butchered it. So welcome to Algis Kuliukas. Perfect, perfect. Most, most people get it terribly wrong and you got it perfectly right. Perfectly right is a uh, more than I expected. Algis, welcome. Um, we uh, we kind of met virtually, as it were, through Twitter. I saw something you posted on the wading hypothesis, which is what we're probably going to spend most of today talking about. Uh, so I reached out and you kindly agreed to come on the podcast. You probably don't know much about what the podcast is. I have no background in archaeology and really in human prehistory. I, I didn't even do history at GCSE, never had an interest in it until... I got to about sort of mid thirties, so my midlife crisis is prehistory, essentially, which is pretty good, I think, con- considering the other options that are sometimes available. I have a very similar history, actually, because I I was thirty six uh, and a, an IT guy. I'm still an IT guy, uh, kind of my the day job, I suppose. But then I I got into prehistory too, and right. it became a, a real obsession for me, and it, it drove me to go back to academia. And I did a master's degree at UCL, and then I actually emigrated here to Australia to do a PhD. And that, and, and basically, it's just become a bit of an obsession for me. That uh, you know, so so like you, I, I wasn't really interested in it at all until my mid thirties. Oh, fantastic! Well, there's hope for me yet. Then hope for me yet. Although, rather than having the, I haven't really got the academia background, so uh, I thought a podcast might be an easier easier slog for me than a master's degree. What was your master's degree in? Well, in human evolution, so I, oh, I did it, I did it uh, under Leslie Aiello, who was, uh, you know, at the time the editor of the Journal of Human Evolution. So it was a real pr- ple- pleasure and a privilege to be there. And there were there were so many great people at UCL at that time. Uh, you know, Mark Collard and uh, Volker Sommer and uh, 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 Fred Spoor and, and and various others. And uh, it was like I, I was only there for a year and a half, uh, or maybe only a year actually, and it was fantastic. So. And that, that was what inspired me to get further into it. And uh, at UCL, uh, a guy called Charles Oxnard used to come and give presentations quite often. And I thought he was at UCL. Uh, but then I found out he was actually over here in UWA. And he did this study uh, into 3D morphometrics to sort of study the shape of bone. And so I followed him down here to do that here. Mm. That's basically how I put him into it. Amazing. Okay, I guess the the best place to start really is to try and understand, I guess, a, a summary of of what the wading hypothesis is. I've had a look myself, um, and from what I can ascertain, the idea is that the thing that helped us as um, as humans evolve to walk upright involved us wading through uh, shallow waters that would have been around at the time of, uh, I guess, the last common ancestor, or is it a bit later, Australopithecus kind of era? Well, um, probably. Uh, I mean, so it's a very good point, a very good question. I mean, uh, the, the, the origin of uh, hominin bipedality seems to get further and further back in time. And the current thinking, I think, is that it could well actually be before the last common ancestor. So wow. the... the the, the last common ancestor of uh, chimp, gorilla and human, and maybe even orangutan as well, might well have been some kind of biped. And we've always sort of thought um, that we were the unique ones and we kind of changed from quadrupedalism to bipedalism. But it might actually turn out that uh, the last common ancestor was all, already somewhat bipedal. And of course, that's one of the attractions for me of the wading hypothesis, because if you postulate a sort of a swamp dwelling ape that uh, is climbing trees and sort of moving through the water bipedally, then that's kind of a, a rather elegant uh, ancestor of both efficient terrestrial bipedalism, which of course we have, 
and this kind of rather bizarre knuckle walking that uh, chimpanzees and gorillas seem to have both evolved. Sort of like an, it's like an X biped that's kind of coming down from their bipedalism back to quadrupedalism almost. But yeah, I mean, if, if, if you want me to talk about the wading hypothesis, I mean, maybe uh, I should start by just sort of talking about how I got into the whole thing in the first place. Uh, yeah, that's a good point, because one thing I did notice when kind of digging into it is it, I must admit, I went through a stage of thinking, is this one of those sort of, and I hate to use the term, and I hope it don't cause offence, because I, I realise now it's, it's definitely not sitting under that, I don't think. Um, but it sometimes gets put in the same category as, as pseudoscience, as, as something that's got no kind of background. And then obviously meeting and talking to you, here is someone with a, a wealth of knowledge and experience and expertise in human origins. So yeah, how did you get onto the kind of the wading hypothesis in the first place? Well, I'm, re I'm really glad you said that because that's kind of been uh, my motivation for the last 25 years. Uh, I mean, the, the story is basically my wife is a, a real expert midwife and our last child uh, was born at home with the birth of, with the aid of a birthing tub because she'd been on this advanced diploma of midwifery in Guildford. And uh, they sort of talked a little bit about water birthing as a kind of a out there topic. And she she just kind of thought it was interesting. So we ended up uh, having the fourth child born at home. Leslie didn't give birth in the tub but she used it quite a lot to sort of ease the labor pains. Mm. And that night, I can remember the little, bit, the little newborn was slept, slept next to us. And uh, I was thinking, well, that's really strange. You know, that's why would a woman want to give birth in water? And it kind of, you know, I couldn't really sleep because I was so excited about it all, as, as you obviously know as well. Because <laughs> yes, you just, yeah. Very exciting time. Anyway, uh, in the morning, I spoke to Leslie about this and she said, don't you remember that uh, documentary we saw about with Desmond Morris? about the human animal and in there he mentioned this aquatic ape thing so anyway this, this these were the early days of the internet and so i went online i did a bit of searching and didn't take long before i found this woman's name elaine morgan and basically i i got into it i started reading about it and very quickly you become aware of this sort of like you say pseudoscience that there's like the the uh, orthodox scientists that seem to have labeled it as all uh, a pseudoscience and there's a lot of hostility. Mm. And, you know, I, I, my, my reaction was, well, is it really that crazy? I mean, why didn't I get taught about this? So I start, you know, I, I read all of her books uh, and, and the best of them was in 97. Uh, she wrote a book called The Aquatic Ape Hypothesis. And it's, it's a very modest book. It asks lots of questions. It's not all arrogant. She's a, she was a brilliant woman and a brilliant writer. She was a playwright for 40 years. You know, she, she didn't just do sort of plays. She did a lot of science documentaries, docudramas. She did one on Russell Wallace, uh, uh, Madame Curie. She, she was really a brilliant woman. She was one of the pioneers of the second wave of feminism. And, you know, when you read her stuff, it's very persuasive. And when I, I just was thought, this is, this is wrong. The, 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 the orthodox field have got this wrong. They've got the wrong end of the stick here. They, they, they think it's kind of crazy, uh, but it, if, if you just scale it back a bit and stop thinking about mermaids and humans living in the ocean or anything crazy like that, but actually living on the water's edge. Mm. And, you know, I know it sounds crazy, but sometimes stepping in the water and sometimes actually going swimming, uh, that's the sort of thing that, that grabbed me right from the beginning. And, and so I, I just thought I've got to go back to academia to look these people in the eye and ask them what's wrong with this thing and why why aren't you actually studying it why why are you ridiculing it and you know i can remember my first day at ucl uh, sitting alongside leslie aiello at this kind of uh, opening party looking at her in the eye and asking her these questions and you could tell she didn't have an answer and here i am 22 years later uh, and I've still not got an answer as to why it's crazy. It's it's not crazy. It's not crazy at all. And and, and as, as long as you scale it back and stop thinking about mermaids and, you know, crazy sort of, um, we, we were aquatic for five million years and all that kind of thing. All I'm talking about, and most of my fellow proponents, and there are not that many of us, to be honest, all we're really saying is some sort of... Um, uh, shore-based life so uh, for me early early on it was swamps and rivers and lakes lakesides 
you know, living inland, uh, you know, absolutely, I agree completely with the fossil record, but there's no, no dispute at all. But at some point, I think humans, the genus Homo, moved to the coast and we started uh, beachcombing, coastal foraging, uh, doing a lot of walking on the beach, uh, you know, getting food from the shallows, uh, low tide. There's a lot of very nutritious food that you can get very easily. Uh, you could teach a three-year-old uh, to, to take a pebble and crack open a mussel and, and scoop out a very brain uh, nutrient rich uh, meal. Uh, and, and, and to me, that's, that's kind of what I've been trying to do. I suppose if you take the savannah hypothesis over here, as, it, as it, it's been called, and the aquatic ape over here, I've kind of tried to find a way of merging the two together and, and get the best bits of both of them and throw away the more, more silly bits of both of them. And, and, and that's what I've called the waterside hypotheses. And I'm glad that, uh, you know, the BBC uh, did a documentary David narrated by David Attenborough just a couple of years ago, two-part doco on the Radio 4, and, it, and they called it the Waterside Ape, which, I, you know, uh, I, I was very proud that they, they used that name. And uh, uh, another uh, chap who's into this idea called Peter Reese Evans, he wrote a book recently called The Waterside Ape. So some of us are trying to find compromise between the old kind of savannah theory and some of the more sort of extreme elements of the aquatic ape. We're, we're just trying to make it into something that's quite sensible. And to me, of all of the things that Elaine wrote about, and there's about seven or eight, the biggest elephant in the room was bipedalism. I just thought, this is kind of obvious, really. You know, you've only got to put a chimpanzee in waist deep water and it will move bipedally 100% of the time, forever, without the use of the upper limbs for support, unlike all the bipedal uh, origins um, models that are arboreal. I mean, uh, some people sort of say, well, maybe we, we, we started being bipedal in trees, but you've got to use your hands in trees. It's not really walking, is it? Right. Uh, whereas in water, when you look at an ape moving through water, it is absolutely unsupported. They usually have their arms in the air like this. And it's actually locomotion. It's not just posture like some of the other models, you know, like threat displays or or uh, penile displays or all of these other sort of uh, sort of theories. That There's about 40 different theories, actually. And on, on I, for my PhD, I did an analysis of all of them. And I found that the wading hypothesis was at least as good as all of them, uh, as any of the others in terms of whatever you want to measure, you know. So, yeah. So, I mean, I, I, it was it was having read Elaine Morgan's book. Uh, and in her last, in her 97 book, she wrote four chapters on, on, on bipedalism. I just thought this is the biggest, uh, the most obvious one uh, of the lot. So I decided that was the thing I was going to study. I've got so many questions off the back of that. I mean, just because uh, essentially this, this podcast is in my journey as a bit of a lay person through prehistory. So um, I'm aware sometimes that maybe some of my listeners might might be a, a lay person like myself so could you just briefly explain the savannah hypothesis so that people okay. know what that's kind of contradicting with okay so i mean the savannah hypothesis there's some debate about when it started i mean elaine morgan wrote that it started with uh, raymond dart when he discovered the tongue child and then a guy called robert ardry came out to visit him and and they kind of together form this kind of very violent view about uh, man's ancestry, the killer ape, and uh, all of that sort of thing. And that was very much based on the savannah. And the idea was that the harsher the habitat, the more they had to be violent to get food. And, and it was the driving force of everything. Mm. Uh, some people uh, have, have, have sort of written that actually the idea of open plains came before that. Uh, there's a, a couple called Renato uh, uh, and Nicole Bender, they actually studied under Philip Tobias in the last few years before he died. And they did, were very, uh, very good lit review uh, of the literature and found many sources going back to Lamarck's time when people thought we evolved on open plains or we, we you know, our, our early ancestors lived on open plains. Mm. So I suppose I suppose the most uh, the, the, the most succinct argument for the Savannah theory would be by Eve Coppen. Uh, which he when he sort of articulated this thing called the east side story so basically the idea is that when the rift valley formed there was a huge transformation in the climate and uh, basically africa got very dry in east africa 
and so the the the, the rainforest kind of died back and it became more open savanna type habitats and the classic view has been that our ancestors had to then move down from the trees and were kind of forced out onto the open plains and that forcing was the main driving force before behind all the major things that we find in human evolution so bipedality body hair loss increased tool use um, intelligence language etc etc uh, and, and, and that's really what the Savannah theory has kind of been. And it still is really today. I mean, people will say that, I mean, John Langdon wrote a paper in 97, which is one of the few critiques of Elaine Morgan's uh, aquatic ape theory. And he said that Elaine Morgan invented the Savannah theory as a straw man to knock down. But it's patently not true. I mean, you go to almost every university in the world and they teach some form of Savannah theory. I mean, the, the latest hypothesis is kind of this endurance running idea that we chase down antelopes over vast stretches of savanna because we have this remarkable thermoregulatory system. And then that that sort of led to um, the evolution of bipedalism through running almost. And that's kind of the idea. So it's still de rigueur today. It's a, still a very popular theory. At my university, UWA, we basically teach the savanna theory. So, so it's, that, the, it's the sort of standard model as, as such. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's just going back to what you were saying about the wading, <clears throat> you know, the, the uh, sorry, the aquatic, did you, what did you call it? The aquatic ape? Well, Elaine Morgan coined the phrase the aquatic ape hypothesis. In fact, it was Desmond Morris that first used the, that term. He wrote yeah, a I mean, book called you, The Naked Ape. When you think sorry. about it, sort of human, uh, human prehistory, human history, We've always been tied to to water. I would say, you know, the, the major cities, ports, how we, you know, moved around. Potentially, the coast probably would have been the easiest way to move around the world. You know, back in those sort of very early um, movements out of Africa, rivers. You know, again, if you look at major cities, major civilizations springing up, it's all around water and the provision that that gives to, to humanity. I think. So it totally makes sense to me. I mean, I guess the, the the thing I'm probably struggling to understand is how that links to, to bipedalism. How would that be an evolutionary advantage out of the water? Because like you said, a chimp can do it in the water. So how would how do you think that would have worked? Okay, well, that, that's that, you know, that's a very good question. And I think most of the people who I've discussed this with. Uh, would have similar kind of questions. Mm. Uh, I, I've been thinking about this for 25 years and I've kind of kind of got it sorted in my mind. But the problem is, of course, persuading others. And, and it's very difficult to persuade anyone. I mean, I, it's been very frustrating uh, trying to get anyone to listen to this thing. So I'm really appreciative of the time here to, to that you're actually open minded enough to listen to it. So, so basically, I mean, the, the, the sort of idea I have is that the last common ancestor of all the great apes was probably some kind of swamp dwelling ape. So, um, you know, if you think of an orangutan in uh, the swamps of Borneo, Mm. That's, that's not far from what basically humans uh, uh, and all the gorillas and the chimp ancestors were doing, I think. Sort of like swampy habitats, uh, there obviously lots of trees around, they spend a lot of time in the trees, but they got big, uh, so they, they had to get down from the trees and they couldn't sort of jump from tree to tree like gibbons do. Uh, and so basically they these swampy habitats are very nutrient rich, perfect place to live really. And so the, the concept is that of, of, a, of a large primate, an ape, uh, a great ape that spent a lot of time wading through the water and climbing trees. So, so my view is that the last common ancestor was a wading, climbing sort of biped. And then from there, the climate did change. I'm not disputing that. Of course it did. And of course, these swamps kind of reduced and became more sort of um, smaller watercourses, kind of rivers, and seasonally flooded rivers, the uh, rivers that sometimes almost dried up and sometimes flooded for, so that the whole valley would be flooded. And basically our ancestors, I think, lived there, whereas the ancestors of the chimps and the gorillas kind of remained in more sort of forested habitats. So they kind of lost their bipedality because there was less water for them to move through. 
Uh, and so they kind of adopted this strange knuckle walking. But our ancestors, my view is that we kind of lived in riverine, uh, what, they, what they call gallery forests. So it's kind of a strip of forest by the edge of, uh, by the edge of a river or a lake, and which, which would have been seasonally flooded. So every year there'd be a sort of like a, a, a wet season when they would have to wade, but there'd be a dry season when the river would shrink and there'd be these beautiful banks, which are kind of ideal for terrestrial bipedalism. Uh, one of the things that pe people don't seem to understand about uh, bipedalism, and we talk about our efficient gait, and it certainly is, but it's only really efficient on a perfectly flat substrate, which is what humans are always walking on. You know, when you're walking down the pavement or on, on a carpet or on a treadmill or on a perfectly manicured lawn, you can swing your leg without bending it in the slightest because the anatomy has evolved to make uh, that uh, shape perfect uh, for uh, optimizing the efficiency of bipedalism. You're not really using very much muscle action at all. You're kind of falling forward with style and just kind of placing your leg in the right spot to take the body weight as you're moving forward. Now, that wouldn't have evolved if we were living in grassland because the grass is just too in the way. There's only a few habitats really where bipedalism, uh, our kind of bipedalism actually makes sense. And that's on a very flat, dried out riverbed during a dry season or at a beach at low tide in the, in the, the littoral zone. So in the intertidal zone between the, you know, the high tide and the low tide, if, as you're strolling along the beach, it's the, one of the most perfect places to go for a walk in the natural world because it, it's got this cushioning effect. There's no vegetation, it's absolutely flat. There's no slope. Uh, I mean, it's the perfect place for walking. So I think, you know, the, the early bipeds were, the earliest bipeds were wading, climbing apes. We went through this kind of riverine phase where we kind of did a bit of wading and a bit of climbing. That would be the Australopithecines. And then eventually, because rivers lead to the sea, some of our ancestors would have ended up on the coasts and they would have soon discovered there's lots of rich pickings there and then would have adopted a coastal foraging lifestyle which involves a lot of walking along the beach, uh, which would make it you know, perfect sense for a very efficient but striding gait. But of course, I know it's a bit crazy, but maybe we did a bit of swimming as well. And, and of course that would affect uh, change the other things about our phenotype. That's, that's basically the model. So when we go back that far, you know, because essentially if you're looking at the last common ancestor, the last thing I read, was sort of 6.57 million years ago. Do we, because when you're drawing these hypotheses, 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 I need to be able to say that word if I'm going to talk about it on a podcast, but yeah, these hypotheses, um, when, you, when you're drawing them up, obviously, you know, for the most part, they've got to be based on some sort of finds or evidence. But when you go that far back, the, the fossil record is very scarce. Do we know much? I mean, I know we know much. We can sort of tell what the climate was like at different times. Um, I guess my question is, what what parts of what's been found, what archaeology, what evidence is there that would support your hypothesis? Or is it that there's just no evidence that supports any of them anyway, so it's all guesswork? <laughs> oh, no, there's, there's, there's very good evidence, actually. Uh, I mean, the earlier back, the earlier you go back, the, the certainly the wetter uh, it is. And I mean, in 2000, I think it was 2000 or 2001, there was a really significant fossil find, Sahelanthropus chidensis. And it was actually discovered in the middle of what was at the time a massive lake. It's, it's called Paleo Lake Chad. Uh, and it, it, sometimes it's called Tumai Man. So T-O-U-M-A-I. And, and this fossil is, uh, is that they only got a skull uh, and on the basis of the foramen magnum, the other hole at the base of the skull, which is quite anterior, uh, it's been diagnosed as some kind of biped or uh, certainly upright stance, whereas, you know, a, a gorilla would have a, 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 a foramen magnum towards the, the back of the skull. Mm. So, and, and that, of course, that was the same evidence that led to DART to diagnose the tongue chart. So it's not crazy this is this has been done before anyway so the 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 layer of fossils in which to my man was found is actually called the au unit now au stands for anthrocotherioid 
unit. And I thought, well, what's an anthracotheriide? And of course, it's a hippo ancestor. They found so many of these hippo ancestors alongside to my man, they called the layer of rock the anthracotheriide unit. And, you know, in none of the literature do, does, is it ever discussed that Sahelanthropus might have actually waded bipedally. Because I have heard of that find. I've never heard that it was found in the um, middle of a lake. It's a taboo. It's a taboo subject because the, the field, I mean, for, for quite a good reasons, you know, I mean, especially in America, there's a lot of crazy creationists and people who follow Bigfoot and things like that. So a lot of, they're very nervous about giving credence to ideas that might be seen as pseudoscience. So I understand their sensitivity to it. But really, you know, they, they should by now have got their heads together and realised that we're not talking about mermaids. We're not talking about the man from Atlantis or anything crazy like that. I mean, that documentary, that sort of fake documentary that was brought out a few years ago, I think it was called uh, Animal, Animal Planet. And they did this kind of fake documentary called Mermaid or something. And it was it was a disgraceful, disgraceful thing. And um, that somehow has, has kind of reinforced this fear and, and, and uh, sort of loathing of anything aquatic. So, uh, you know, I mean, I can't even get um, my own university to show the, a video of an ape wading to the students because they might get the wrong idea. You know, it's, it's, it's really a, a quite frustrating. Isn't that, but, but even saying get the wrong idea implies that you have the definitive idea and no one has the definitive idea anyway so surely well exactly not exactly. the i mean obviously not the more kind of ludicrous ideas that are based on nothing then yes they need to be treated as such but if there is something that is a possibility surely that needs to be addressed it's interesting um, what what happens a lot in the uk particularly at the moment is you'll you get like a, a story that's based on an archaeological find and then it gets sort of siphoned up to a headline um, the most classic example over here recently was uh, beaker people invasion and that, that they wiped out the population. And whilst the genetics do show a replacement, there's nothing, there's no evidence to suggest it was violent as yet. But obviously the papers put that, they're going to put the beaker people wiped out half the, you know. Um, and and I, I've been kind of wondering how damaging that is and it almost feels like your story is a bit of an example of that because absolutely absolutely the damage done well, by I, those things stops you being able to actually postulate a, a different theory that is based on some really solid evidence by the sound of it well, absolutely absolutely that's exactly my sort of struggle and and it started right from the beginning i mean that the whole idea has a very unfortunate history i don't know if you've ever heard of sir alistair hardy but he was the person that first had the idea back in the 1930s, actually. He was a marine biologist, a very, very high rep repute. He was a fellow of the Royal Society, and you can't get much sort of more elite than that. And he, but, and, and he had this idea about the aquatic ape when he was dissecting uh, seals and uh, marine mammals because they have subcutaneous fat that sticks to the skin. Mm. And he was reading this book uh, by Frederick Wood Jones, called Man's Place Among the Mammals. And he was speculating about, it's strange when you just dissect a human and you pull the skin back, the fat sticks to the skin, uh, like, you know, rather than like a rabbit, which sticks to the viscera. And, and, and Hardy had this eureka moment in 1930 that maybe man was more aquatic in the past, but he realized it was such a controversial idea. He didn't say a word until he retired. And then he went to Brighton to give a talk to the Subaqua Club in Brighton. And he kind of candidly uh, admitted to this idea, but there was some guy from the Sunday Express at the back of the room, gleefully writing down notes. And the next day, the headline was, uh, 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 sea turned man in, uh, ape into man, says Professor. And of course, all the authorities got wind of this and said, Alistair, you must never say that again, you know, and he was kind of dis ridiculed. Mm. And, and so the idea was kind of knocked back for years because of that. Uh, and it was only when Desmond Morris mentioned it favourably because he was one of his students in his book, The Naked Ape, that it kind of then was on its way to being revitalised. And Elaine Morgan read that book and got really angry about it because it was kind of promoting man, the mighty hunter and the Savannah theory. And she was kind of, her angle was, well, we're, what were the women doing? 
just sitting back at camp waiting for the men to come back with some meat what was their role in evolution mm. uh, and, and so she got angry and then she wrote this classic book called the descent of woman a hundred years after darwin's descent of man and it was a real bestseller all over the world and, it, and that's what gave this idea a lot of popularity and there's lots of people like me who kind of like the idea but i'm very weird in that i've actually returned to academia to try and find out what's wrong with it mm. and, uh, and so far uh, you haven't found anything no i, I i'm <laughs> more convinced than i've ever been and and uh, and as, as course of as time goes by you kind of hone in your little theories and as the evidence is emerges you think oh well that can't be right then i mean i used to think that bipedalism only was a, a human lineage thing and there's a guy called Mark Verhagen who always argued that our last common ancestor was bipedal. And I thought he was crazy. But then when Sahelanthropus was discovered, I thought, oh, OK, well, Mark must be right then. And, and so um, I've kind of changed my mind on that. One. I spoke to a chap with Jeremy De Silva um, and he was talking about a, a find of a, a foot that they'd sort of come across recently that was completely out of the scope of what you would see as the evolution of the foot getting more efficient to what we're doing today again going back to that sort of time period you know we we have this very kind of honed linear idea of human evolution certainly again in in the sort of lay literature um but actually there could be innumerate species that are kind of offshoots that didn't survive didn't quite get there didn't leave a mark um evolved in different ways so for us to kind of assume we know what the last common ancestor was like by a process of sort of moving back and elimination, I think is, a, is seems to me a little bit kind of, I guess, arrogant. I listened to your podcast with Jeremy and uh, he's just got a book that just came out last week called First Steps. And uh, I, I, bought, I bought it. I buy all the books on bipedalism. Uh, very disappointed that he didn't give the aquatic ape much uh, of a, a say. No, no surprise though, of course, you know, being an no. orthodox anthropologist. And in my defence, I'd never heard of that at that point. So otherwise, I would have I would have done that. So maybe I'll get him back and talk to him. Maybe we oh. can do a double podcast with both of you. <laughs> oh, I, love I mean, that. well, does this was another thing that I, I was interested in? Um, so you you go back to university, and you're presumably spending a lot of your time sat in rooms of people or with in rooms with people that don't even want to talk about the aquatic ape theory. And you're, I can imagine you like a sort of well-informed fly buzzing in their ear. Hang on. How was that? What was that like? Well, it, 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 was, it was very funny, actually, because, uh, you know, I kind of rationed myself to two mentions per tutorial because you could see their eyes roll. Uh, <laughs> and, and, you know, but I, I, and, and uh, my, my one of my, uh, the guys there, Mark Collard, who's uh, a, a really good uh, paleoanthropologist and you know he's written some great papers um and uh, he was kind of uh, my tutor for one of my uh, one of my projects and he got so sick of me asking him well what about the aquatic ape what about this and he, he at one boat at one stage he kind of ran away <laughs> went to his room and locked his door because he, <laughs> he, he was so sick of me asking questions but no i mean i had i had a great time at ucl it was brilliant i mean and and to be fair leslie aiello was really kind of encouraging and uh, you know i got a distinction for my master's thesis and she said that my bonobo i did this study of bonobos and she said it was one of the best things she's ever read at that level so you know i mean the, the, that's one of the things i want i wanted to say actually because uh, when I first got into it, Elaine Morgan, uh, in her book, uh, she showed four chapters on bipedalism. But at the time, the best evidence she could come up with was the proboscis monkey in Borneo. And, and they had this reputation for wading bipedally in shallow water. And, and of course, you know, when I started getting into it, this is just a couple of years later, I thought, well, there must be some evidence of apes doing this. And I heard a rumour that the bonobos in Belgium at the Plankendal Museum often went into the water bipedally. So I went there with my camera. It was only a, a very short study, two days. But it was clear that when they went in the water, they moved bipedally and then back on land, back to quadrupedalism. Uh, back, back to quadrupedalism. Uh, but of course, since then, there's been no end of video footage, photos. Uh, I mean, I don't know if you saw the David Attenborough uh, mm. programme, Life of Mammals. And the very last one in the series was called um, uh, Food for Thought. 
and he did this beautiful scene when he's wading in the galoshes and behind him are the chimpanzees wading from side to side bipedally. And, and when I saw that in 2003, I just thought, ah, oh, this is it then. It's, it's on the verge of becoming uh, recognised. I mean, how can anyone see that and not see how good this hypothesis is? But here I am 20 years later nearly, and it's still in the wilderness. It's still not being taken seriously. And it's very disappointing. It's, I mean, and it's and it's not even being con considered. Then it's it's just completely. What what would so, so let's say I'm I'm um, I've brought you on here to to take down your hypothesis and you know be all kind of anti it. I haven't, by the way. But what what would I be asking? What would my point be? What would I be saying? You know, what, right. what would my argument be? It's very good. It's a very good point. I mean, there aren't many good arguments. Uh, I mean, I, 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 I want to plug my book, by the way. So I've written a book about well. Elaine Morgan. It was uh, for her 100th birthday last November. And I tell the whole story of Elaine, uh, the history of the aquatic ape, Alistair Hardy, uh, in the context of how human evolution, our understanding of human evolution has changed. And, and in that, I talk about this, this point. What do they say? And there's, there's, you know, I've analysed it. I mean, I've, I've been listening to this for 20 years. So I've, I've analysed it and I've categorised the responses. So number one is they just completely ignore it. They don't, they don't respond. Whenever you email somebody with a question about this, they just ignore it. Okay. Number, two, number two on the list is a misrepresentation. It's a straw man argument. It's like mermaids. We're talking about mermaids. You're talking about living in the sea. No, 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 we're not. Number three is ad hominem. They, they, they call us creationists. Henry G., the chief editor at Nature, wrote a, an article in The Guardian saying that we are like creationists. I mean, what an insult. I mean, I, I, it's the opposite of creationism. It's, it's If anything, it's hyper-adaptationist. Mm. It's, it's too Darwinist. Mm. Um, uh, and, and that's another criticism. I mean, they seem to say, you know, it doesn't really matter what the, why it's wrong, but it just must be wrong. Uh, and, and so that's that's the that's kind of the third one, the ad hominem. And then you get down to the sort of actual kind of reasonable arguments, which I would accept are kind of reasonable. So one of them would say, well, the fossil evidence. So the fossil evidence is, you know, we're, we, we, uh, the fossil evidence is largely inland. And, and that's true. The, most of the fossil evidence is largely an, inland. And, and of course, that would be a, an argument against Alistair Hardy's idea, which was coastal, because there's very little evidence of humans living on the coast. So at least there wasn't at that stage. Uh, but, uh, but that's where I've tried to sort of meld it with the uh, savannah theory. And of, of course, all of the fossil habitats are inland, but they're all wet. They're all in swamps, in lakesides and riversides. And, and so it, it's not a contradiction at all. It's actually in favour of our idea. And, and, and what the answer to that would be, well, that's taphonomic bias. We, we, all fossils are found in the waterside. Therefore, you can't really say that's an argument for a waterside living. So this kind of debate goes back and forth. I would argue, well, uh, you know, we, <laughs> Lucy was found next to crocodile, turtle and crab remains. In, in, in a, a Hadar, the habitat where Lucy was found was a wetland for a million years. Kubifora, Olduvai Gorge, Lake Takana, these are all waterside habitats. Uh, I talked about Sahalanthropus already in Lake Chad. There are so many of the habitats are actually wet. Uh, uh, and, and go on. Sorry, I, did, I got a bit confused. So one of their arguments is all the, there's not enough evidence because they're all found inland. Yes. Or for the coast. Yes, because they're sort of arguing against the mermaid, you know, yeah. the sea living that idea. Yeah. And, and we've, you know, we've moved on from that. At least I have. I know, well, I never even thought it was a sea living animal. But actually, most of the finds are connected in wet areas, the ones that are found inland anyway. So pretty much. I mean, you do find a lot of fossils in caves, which are, which are, are obviously not. And that find that you were talking about, Jeremy De Silva was talking about, I think he was called, talking about Sediba, Homo Sediba was found in a cave. But, but uh, actually, even that, a lot of the debris for these caves are sometimes washed in for, by local rivers when they flood. So it's not, it's even, even that's not uh, sort of so clear cut. And the other, the other classic one is the Laetoli footprints, which were found in volcanic ash. So I couldn't argue that was wading. 
But then again, it, it was raining as well. Otherwise, the volcanic ash wouldn't have turned to a kind of cement, which would have left these footprints. If it was dry, the footprints would have just got blown away. So, you know, the, the, there's not really much evidence that that argument's not very strong, but it's certainly one of the strongest arguments. And then the other, the other big one would be from comparative anatomy. So one of the things the aquatic ape theory says is, you know, we look at, I mean, we, we, this part of my arm here, I don't know about yours, you look quite hairy, uh, Sam, but uh, this, this part of my arm, I would imagine yours is too, is pretty glabrous, right? There's not much body hair there. That's true. Yeah, there's no hair there. Yeah, and, and, and compared to a typical chimp or a gorilla, we certainly have lost a lot of our body hair. I mean, apart from the scalp, uh, we don't really have much functional body hair, eyebrows and a few other sort of sexual markers. Mm -hmm. But basically, um, they would argue, well, lots of aquatic mammals haven't lost their hair. Uh, and, and therefore, that, that, that idea can't be right. And, and that's another kind of argument they use. Again, I think it's pretty weak because there's good counter arguments to that, but I won't go into all of that now. But, but basically, that's the sort of that's the sort of like the hierarchy of arguments. And by the time you get to down to number five or six, they start to get reasonable, but they're not many of them. I mean, another good one against the wading hypothesis would be crop predation. I'm, I'm the first to admit, you know, it's a bit of a risk to go wading in an African swamp when there are crocs around. Uh, but, you know, then again, so is the savannah. You know, there's lots of leopards and lions around yeah. and uh, leopards can climb trees, but I've never, I don't think a crocodile can, you know, so. I mean, if human if human evolution was based upon not going into places where there were things that were going to eat you, we wouldn't have left. Well, anywhere we do things that eat, eat you in trees. There's snakes in trees; you can get eaten by a snake. Yeah, so we'd be stuffed. Uh, <laughs> and I guess as well, what strikes me there is the, the later arguments about loss of body hair. Well, from what you're not necessarily saying that all early humans waded as their predominant sort of lifestyle, are you? You're saying that there was a, an early common ancestor, then that's that's what led us to bipedalism. So maybe by Homo erectus, we're not wading as much, we're walking, but that we got there because of the wading. Yeah, that, that, absolutely. So, I mean, I mean, to me, I've got my, my model, I've, I've got this the, 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 the sort of like headline thing for my model is river apes, coastal people. So river rapes is like the, the wading climbing in, in, in sort of gallery forests and swampy type habitats. Coastal people, we're on the coast, we're walking uh, efficiently as terrestrial bipeds with our, you know, on, on this beautiful sort of pavement, which is the beach uh, by the water's edge, a lot. Uh, and on, obviously not all the time. And, and obviously some of populations would have moved inland and, and, and some populations would have done the endurance running thing. But I just don't think it was the main driver. I think most of our ancestry for Homo, uh, the genus Homo generally, but Homo sapiens in particular, was uh, sort of beachcombing with a bit of swimming and diving. One of the things I think I, I actually really enjoy about prehistory, especially when you go that far back, is, yes, when they say that a statement such as, oh, the, the fossil evidence doesn't suggest as such. And then you actually take the time to look at what the fossil evidence is and it's not a lot you know there's it's not like it's uh, one thing that was i was considering when you were talking about you know their eating habits i was thinking oh well why haven't they just studied what they used to eat at that time but of course you can't that far back you can do that with more modern ish finds you can you can you can find a roman burial and you can analyze the teeth and i think even further back than that you can find out what they were their eating habits were Presumably you can't do that with um, Salanthropus, or is it Salianthropus? Sahel, Sahel Anthropus. Sahel so Sahara. But it's a name for the Sahara, I think. Well, look, look, I mean, I, I, I don't know about all of that. I, I, I know that there are some people that study microwear on teeth very to a very high degree, and they can deduce certain things that they were eating. The shape of the teeth do inform quite a bit about the sort of diet that these... Uh, animals would, would eat what, what they were eating um, and I think uh, in, in your podcast last week I was hearing uh, Chris Stringer talk about that sort of thing they can actually look at decay uh, and sort of analyze what the, the, the what what sort of chemicals that is in the decay of the teeth you know you're quite it's quite embarrassing that you seem to remember more about my podcast than I bloody do uh, which... <laughs> well 
I, I love I love Chris Stringer, and uh, so when when I was so thrilled, to, I'm so uh, thrilled to be following in his and Jeremy's footsteps, particularly Chris. I mean, uh, I, I saw Chris give a talk at, at uh, when I was at UCL. You know, I was saying there's lots of great people there, and he gave a talk, and he was talking about the out of Africa theory, and I can remember being really impressed. And at the end, I asked him. Uh, Chris, you know, do you think if we had all these coastal migration routes, uh, do you think that could be an explanation for this so-called aquatic ape theory that, you know, maybe we would have lost our body hair swimming? And he kind of sidestepped it and said, no, I don't think that. But if you want to have something, if you want to look for something that uh, we might have got affected through by water, by moving through water, he actually said this. This is his quote. What about wading? And that was Chris Stringer saying this in the year 2000. And that was another big thing that kind of led me to think this has got to be a, a, a pretty, pretty good hypothesis. Mm. Well, it was, I mean, what I did do, what I do remember from that interview was, was how incredible it was to speak to someone with that length of time in the field who was so aware of how many times he's had his mind changed. And perhaps yeah. that's why he's a bit more open to, well, maybe we don't know that and maybe this this shows that and actually you, I'm so glad you reminded me because I also spoke to someone called Brianna Povener who's fantastic from the Smithsonian about early human diets and she was explaining all the incredible things they can do um what what I meant was that there are, there's particular analysis you can do on more modern teeth that almost give you exactly what they were eating whereas back then it's more of a kind of here's the the wear and tear on the tooth like you say the shape of the tooth so it's educated guesswork, but it's not an exact science as much, perhaps. But, but, you, but, you, but you're right. I mean, the, the fossil evidence is very sparse. I mean, if you go back to the Miocene, so earlier than five million years ago, there are, I don't know how many, 20, 20 genera, not species, genera of apes. So right. you've got Sivopithecus, Greekopithecus, Aranopithecus, Oreopithecus. Greekopithecus. Greekopithecus, yeah, yeah. I mean, there, 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 are, there are hundreds of them, and, mm. and nearly all of them are on the basis of a single tooth, a single tooth, because the, what the, the diagnostic trait of, a, of, an, of, a, of an ape is what's called a Y5 molar, so a molar with five cusps. So mm. whenever they find a, a molar with y, five cusps, it's like, aha, this must be a great ape. And, of course, the vanity of the fossil discoverer is such that they probably want to call it a completely new name and, 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 and have it get a completely new genera. And you think, well, there can't have been that many genera. I mean, I'm sorry. There, there probably was uh, something that was part of our genus, you know, the, 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 the last common ancestor of the chimp and the, and the gorilla and the orangutan. Um, and maybe we should come up with a genus name for that. And they should just put them all in that until we know any better. It just seems to me ridiculous that so much is inferred from so little. Well, when you said the, the Greek Epithecus, I bet that was someone from Greece. That's got to have been discovered by someone. Well, it, it was Greek from Greece. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's uh, there's so much I could talk to you about. Uh, it's, it's really interesting. So uh, I guess one thing, I because I was aware, um, I think you sent me a link to a sort of straw man debate against the aquatic ape where you kind of jumped in underneath. It was from, it was involving a bit of a, a heroine of mine or a hero of mine, Alice Roberts. Um, so, and I'm all, I've been angling to get her on the podcast for years before I even started doing it just on prehistory. Um, and she's always swerved it. She always ignores me on Twitter. So we can say whatever we like. She probably won't hear it. But well, I, I me too. I love I love Alice Roberts. I mean, I can remember her being on the program Coast, and she was uh, brilliant. And she's such mm. in, such enthusiasm, and she's a brilliant anatomist. Actually, I'm very impressed mm. with her work. But this piece that you're alluding to, I mean, it was her and Mark Maslin, who's a, a lecturer at, at UCL. They wrote this terrible piece because David Attenborough did this documentary I was talking about called The Waterside Ape. And he, it was a two-part documentary, and it was looking at the latest science on this theory. And they interviewed about 20 different people. It was a really good documentary. I mean, it's an open-minded thing on the BBC to say, well, this is an interesting idea. And Alice and Mark wrote a piece to kind of shut down that debate. It was, it was saying, how can the BBC be, be peddling pseudoscience? And it was, it was so disappointing. Oh, I couldn't believe that she 
is one of these people that is so kind of close-minded on it. It's, I mean, it's that word, isn't it? It's pseudoscience. It, it almost feels like there needs to be a redefinition of that. I mean, I remember speaking to Brianna. She works for the Smithsonian. You know, she's not a pseudoscientist. But even she said, um, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Um, and there are so many gaps to what we know. Yes, I think some of the some of the people out there that get linked with pseudoscience, they, they make these leaps that just make it, you know, make it too ludicrous for anyone to consider. But when it's based on something, when it's based on a reason, a find, you know, something, someone like yourself that's spent a huge part of their life devoted to studying it, how, does, how do we get those things lumped in together? Uh, you know, how do we, because you're in, that would put you in the same category as aliens build pyramids exactly, which exactly. there's a bit of a gap there i would say <laughs> well i mean i had a bit of an argument with mark maslin about this just yesterday actually and uh, and he kind of said that this is just kind of like a flat earth blah 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 and I, my reply my reply was i don't think the flat earth society could show a video of an orangutan wading through a swamp for a minute completely bipedally without the use of the upper arms. And, and, and that's the difference. Like you say, there's a, an over, it's actually overwhelming, the evidence. And, and, and it's becoming um, more obvious to me that the current uh, field is in one of these classic, what is called a Kuhnian paradigm shift. I don't know if you know the work of Thomas Kuhn. He wrote this book called The, the, the Revol Scientific Revolutions, I think, something like that anyway. And it, and it basically talks about how uh, science generally works like you're adding a brick to a wall you're adding a brick to a wall and every PhD student adds another brick and then all of a sudden something comes along we've been building it in the wrong place you know we need a paradigm shift and and that's what happens over and over again in science and to me that that's what's going on here they, they've, they've kind of resisted this aquatic ape they've got the wrong end of the stick quite quite reasonably I don't blame them I certainly don't blame them in 1960 for kind of reacting to the Sunday Express headlines and the fact that it was Elaine Morgan who was a popular science writer as opposed to a scientist that was promoting this idea I can't I can't blame them for belittling it but when you've got apes wading through water uh, and it, it's so obvious really I mean I've got to show you my t-shirt <laughs> That wow. is not rocket Where can science. I get one of those? <laughs> oh, I'll send you. I'll send you one if you want. I mean, it's it's not rocket science. It's bleeding obvious, and yet they still resist it. Because if they didn't resist it, they've got to start giving kudos to this thing that they've labelled pseudoscience for so long, and they're going to look a little bit foolish, and that's the problem. Vanity is very rife in academia. Are they even resisting the idea that? we would have lived in wetlands and therefore waded to gather food? Or is it just the idea that that led to bipedalism that's the problem? Well, that's it, a very good question. I mean, it's basically, they, they, they of course accept that we have to drink water. Of course, of course, of course. But it's the moving through the water. Uh, I don't, there's, a, there's a guy called Richard Potts, who uh, is a bit of a hero of mine, actually. Uh, and, and he's been studying uh, the... Um, paleo climates of east africa for 25 years mm. so he went to a place called oligosali and basically he he did he's done this fantastic work uh, and found that it wasn't just a linear went from dry uh, sorry from wet to dry in a kind of a linear way what he found was it went wet dry wet dry wet dry in ever increasing phase and frequency and it led him to start this theory called the variability selection hypothesis. So it's the way that climate changes so much that kind of made us smart. And that gave us the adaptability to become human. And he gave a talk on Zoom um, just a few weeks ago at Liverpool John Moores University. And it, and it was a great talk. And I, I listened to it intently. And then at the end, I asked him a question. I said, um, Richard, you know, you talk about variability selection, but aren't you really talking about selection from moving through water? Because he had this slide where it was savannah for one 10,000 year period. And then 10,000 years later, it was a lake. 
and then 10,000 years later it was a swamp and then 10,000 years later it's back to savannah I mean if our ancestors were living in that habitat isn't it kind of likely they might have stepped in the water occasionally and he and he said I, I ignore the aquatic ape I think they walked around these watercourses you think well come on how, how crazy is that I mean has he never seen a beach where people go swimming hasn't he ever seen uh, fishermen wading into the river and that's just incredible really I'm I, I, I just gone well, that just sounds ludicrous. I mean, the more you... Obviously, I know I'm getting a, a very, again, balanced and well-honed view, but it is obviously one side of the argument, I guess. But I'm with you. I mean, it sounds ludicrous because, again, chimps are not afraid to go in the water. They're not... It, I mean, they, some of them are obviously a bit skittish if they've never seen it before, but we know that some of them have adapted to do that, but no bows in particular. But the idea that you've got... I don't know, maybe a group of starving early hominins and they're looking across a river that stretches for miles that way, miles that way, or an enormous lake um, with a little gap across here. And they can see this wonderful lush vegetation that they love eating or a bit of fruit that they love. Or you know, I'll do the classic book chimp thing, a banana, even though we don't really like bananas. Um, and they would go, oh, yeah, no, I'm not. I'm not even going to see what that is. I'm not going to, you know, let's go and start a fire or let's go and evolve some other fantastic. Let's go out of Africa, shall we? But no, I'm not crossing that water. This seems a little bit nonsensical to a lay person such as myself. Anyway. Oh, it, 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 does seem, it seems to me they've painted themselves into a corner where they, they just cannot admit any selection. They, they, they can accept that they went to the water's edge to drink and to, you know, to procure food but to actually move through the water is a bridge too far. And that to me is where is, is really kind of preposterous. Mm. And, and, and so another thing that kind of led me to get into was a little bit of genetics. So uh, people often exaggerate the amount of selection needed for a phenotype to change. But one of the things I always like to challenge people, I say, you know, just download a, a population genetics piece of software. There's lots of them you can get. There's one from Washington State University called PopG, popg.exe. It's just a little program. And you can put in all sorts of numbers, like how many are in the population, what's the degree of selection, you know, and things like that. And then you can say, I want 100 populations, and then run it for a million years. And you can see how many populations that allele, that, you know, that gene becomes, you know, everyone's got it. And mm. it's amazing how quickly... Uh, an allele will become fixed. I mean, yeah. I've run it many times when there's the, the, the allele doesn't exist, but I have a low pop, a, 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 a mutation rate, which is kind of what from the literature, what's what's that seems to be right. And within about 20, 30,000 years, everyone's got that. Allele. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, if, if our ancestors just went into the water a bit more than chimps, that would be enough. You know, you, you're not talking about a mermaid here. It's just a little bit of selection, more than with chimps and gorillas. That's all we're talking about. That's, yeah. It's funny, I, I, I was aware of that because a few years back, um, before I got into really into prehistory, I was into sort of, um, well, Vikings, really. The Viking era, Dark Ages, Britain and all of that. And, uh, and I did one of those DNA tests. And obviously I was like, please be Viking, please be Viking, please be Viking. Um, spent 80 quid on it or whatever. Got it back, 88.9% British and Irish. Brilliant. So basically my ancestors never left Devon probably, didn't even leave the house, I don't know. Um, but the, then I started sort of obsessing about DNA tests and looking into it. And I read something somewhere that said, everyone in Western Europe is related to the Emperor Charlemagne pretty much. And that's only like, it's not even that long ago, you know, a couple of thousand years or a thousand years ago. I mean, like you say that, yeah, there, there's that, Point of connection particularly back then it's only got to be one little adaptation and it just goes across across the whole population so fascinating um i've got a very bizarre question now just that re relates to your um your time at university ucl did you get any were there ever any swimming trips uh, no there was, but, but i, I did i did you some would have been through the water like that <laughs> wouldn't you that's what through the shallow end hi guys <laughs> Uh, we did, we did, I did do some uh, experiments, though, in a, in a pool in Amersham with a variable depth, which was quite interesting. 
Okay. But I bet they didn't come to watch everyone else. No, no, no. no. no, no, no. <laughs> um, right. I, I, I don't want to take up too much of your time, although I'd love to get you back on again. And, 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 um, but I do have a bit of a tradition of these kind of quick fire questions. Uh, I might adapt them slightly. You might have heard them before. Um, first one, it, you've got to, I'm going to give you a time machine. Now, a couple of people recently, a couple of guests recently, have been taking advantage of this time machine. Chris Stringer took advantage of it, but I didn't have the heart to sort of not let him because he, you know, I, I didn't want to interrupt, but he kind of wanted to sort of sit outside a, inside a cave for 10,000 years. I'm going to give you what you could get one point in time to go back to. You've got to guess at it. It can't be, you know, again, I think, um, I think Jeremy said the last common ancestor. We don't know when that was. So, you know, where are you going to go? You've got, you've got oh, a time machine. I know exactly where I'd go. I would go to the AFAR Triangle, um, probably around 200,000 years ago, which is the best estimate we've got for the origin of Homo sapiens, modern Homo sapiens. And I would uh, go and look for our early ancestors, you know, the, the very first humans mm. uh, around the coast of what is now Eritrea. So uh, uh, the, the, the little part of the, it's called the Danakil Depression. It was flooded uh, by, by a sort of a tectonic jolt uh, about four million years ago. And Lucy lived just by the, by the edge of that, but inland uh, in a, by a lake. And uh, my crazy idea is that that's where we evolved and our ancestors all originally came from there. Uh, the, Afar, the this, this sort of inland sea, uh, it was not really an inland sea, it was kind of like an isthmus, it's kind of connected in, a, in an inlet. And then there was another jolt and it then gradually dried away. And so it, became, it did become an inland sea and it finally dried away 80,000 years ago. Now I, I've got this crazy sort of romantic idea that if our ancestors evolved in that spot by this inland sea and then gradually it started drying up and it started to dry up around 80,000 years ago that's consistent with the out of Africa 2 theory right so that was where I would go I would go to that spot around 200,000 years ago and see if I could find any modern humans that's what I would do but you would you have to see the trouble with that is you wouldn't know about the sixty thousand. You'd have to you'd have to stay there a while, wouldn't you? You wouldn't know oh, about wow. it drying up. Is so. it, if, it, if it's a one way trip, well, that's the best way to go, I think. Well, it, yeah, it is a one way trip, I'm afraid. And that's that's my next question. You <laughs> now, I think I have to adapt this question because everyone just says no. Um, but let's say you can up sticks. You can take your friends and family. You can have a little house built there just to observe from. Um, it would very much confuse the locals, I'd imagine. But you can just go back there and live there, but you can't ever come back. Would you do that? I, I wouldn't, but <laughs> if, it, if, 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 if I was forced to, it would be the same place, because that, to me, is the most interesting part of the world from a human evolution point of view. Okay. And what? let's say you are now forced to, again, this is not optional anymore, what one item would you take uh, let's say you're fully you're fully clothed so that you're not cold. Um, but yeah, one survival, what would you take with you? You've got time to grab one thing. It would have to be a book. Book. I don't I don't know which book. Maybe one of You've my got a lot of books behind you. I think yeah. I might I might go for a Richard Dawkins. Uh, okay. Maybe maybe uh, the ancestors' tale. I love reading that. I'm not sure mom. about your your idea of going back then and, and being able to just sort of put your feet up and read a book, it could be pretty hectic. <laughs> You're going to have to survive. Well, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be thinking I'm going to survive very long. I mean, I, I'm, I'm absolutely crap at fighting. And, and so I don't think I would, I, I don't think I'd survive five minutes anyway. So I think I'd have a good read before I die. Maybe a bottle of wine, take a bottle of wine with me. Yeah, that, yeah, true. At least you can enjoy your, your final hours <laughs> or a magnum. A vat of wine. That's right. Absolutely. Still got, I see. I think a lighter because I just think you would look like a wizard. You know, you'd be like, ah, oh, and then everyone would sort of bow to you. And then fast forward two hundred thousand years, there's these weird temples that look a bit like me. That everyone's like, who's that guy that they all built temples about? Yeah, I have thought about this. Okay, thank you so much for your time, Aldis. Um, your book. 
you get you gave it a bit of a mention. Where do people go to find your fantastic new book? Just just Google Elaine Morgan, one hundred years. Uh, if you Google it or Amazon, it's on Amazon. So if you go to Amazon, that would be the perfect place. But just uh, Elaine Morgan, one hundred years from anywhere in Google will get you there. I'll put a link on the uh, on you. the blurb. Very common. So, um, but yeah, thank you ever so much for your time. It's been fascinating, actually. I just, just an area of prehistory that I hadn't even, I mean, there's probably lots of those at the moment that I hadn't even heard about or considered. Um, and you certainly changed my mind because I did think, you know, I did think, oh, is this going to be a bit of a, a crazy, crazy man out there? Yeah, but the pseudoscientist trying to peddle mermaids or something. Now I can understand that, and and you know I was kind of uh, I, I must admit I was kind of expecting you to pull the plug because you might have got cold feet about it, having read some of the stuff on Twitter. But at the end of the day, I'm, I really appreciate your time, and thanks for being so open-minded and curious. And that's all I ask for, really. I don't expect anyone to believe this stuff, but a little bit of open-mindedness would be kind of good for scientists. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you don't have to agree or believe with a hypothesis to appreciate that it has some potential or some grounding i, I don't think you know thank you ever so much enjoy the rest of your day and to everyone that's listening um please do send us feedback if you want to be a guest or or anything like that it's bunch of apes at gmail.com and as you can see I, I do have an open mind and i am up for listening to people tell me about aliens built the pyramids i will be less open-minded about that so you know any everyone is welcome i won't be getting cold feet um but yeah uh, also if you want to help grow the show and help get fantastic guests like algus back on um please like please review please share all of those things really help we really appreciate it thank you everybody for your time thanks for listening